So when we come to the last section here of Luke chapter 16, it is important to note we're still in Luke chapter 16. We haven't changed audiences. We haven't changed the topic. We haven't changed what Jesus is talking about. He is continuing to talk about exactly what he's been talking about now for a little bit. He has been instructing the Pharisees. He's been talking specifically and directly to them. Uh, you will recall he gave the parable about the uh, clever steward who used his money to pursue uh, his future, to set out his future and take good care of it. And he is commended for doing that. And Jesus points to him and says, you know, sometimes the world thinks better than Christians do about their future, encouraging us to think more clearly about our own future. And then he goes on and talks about wealth, and he makes it very clear that you cannot set out and be determined to serve wealth and to become rich and be determined to serve God at the same time. Now, you may serve God and, and end up rich. You, you can do that. But there's going to come a moment where you're either going to have to pursue wealth or you're going to have to pursue God. You can't serve both of those. You cannot serve two masters. And when Jesus says that, at that point, the Pharisees mock and ridicule and scorn him and his teaching. So Jesus responds to that. And you, if you've been coming for the last previous weeks, we've gone for three weeks talking about how Jesus responds to them. Well, we're going to keep right on talking about it because the passage in front of us is also part of that response. So first of all, the way Jesus responds to them, and it should catch our notice, is that Jesus responds to them publicly. Jesus doesn't take them aside and talk to them quietly. He stands right out there in front of everyone and proceeds to address these men who have just got done scoffing at them, at him. The very fact that Jesus addresses that publicly is socially shocking. These are the religious leaders. These are the Pharisees, after all, and the scribes who are, they're, they're the lawyers. They're the guys who interpret the law. No one rebukes them publicly. They set the standards. They are the one who tell others what to think and how to act and what righteousness is and how God sets his standards. No one tells them, well, except Jesus. Jesus does, in fact, tell them. And what he tells them is that you guys are wrong about your money and about your finances and about your view that your position as a rich person is somehow giving you a right standard with God because it's not going to. The measure of righteousness is not this measure that you think it is. These guys think that if they compare themselves among themselves, if they compare themselves to one another and to the society at large, and of course they come out on top of that comparison, that somehow because they see themselves as winning out in this standard, that surely God is adopting their standard. Jesus says to them, God doesn't care about your standards. And he says it publicly. In fact, what is highly esteemed among you is detestable to God, is what he actually says to them, implying that you're detestable. Jesus says to them, you think that the law and the prophets are the be-all and end-all, and that if you just measure up to what the law and the prophets have to say, then surely you are good before God. One, the law and the prophets are passed away. 
with John being the last prophet, those are now done away with. And there's a new standard now, and it's to repent and to get into the kingdom of God. And that requires that you humble yourself. So this is a different standard. And even if we kept the standard that you guys seem to think you want to keep, which is the law of Moses, uh, you think that you are keeping the letter of the law. You have no idea what the letter of the law is. Actually, you guys are disregarding the letter of the law, and he gives them an example about their marriages. Your eagerness to engage in divorce and remarriage is making all of you adulterers, and you're making the people with whom you're married to be adulterers as well. So in four short verses, Jesus publicly stands up and condemns them and says, God has a problem with you and your finances. God has a problem with you and your fellow man and the way you condemn all of them. God has a problem with your view on the law and the prophets and your inability to keep it. And oh, by the way, God has a problem with your family and your family relationships and you're all a bunch of lousy husbands. Now, I don't know about you, but... I mean, when I was growing up, people said to me, there are polite conversations and there are things that you just, you know, you don't really discuss in public. You don't ask people about their money. You don't talk to people about their family. You don't, you just don't talk about these kinds of things. There's certain things in, in public you just don't talk about. Jesus just got done talking about them all. I mean, what in the world is he going to talk about next? Hell? Oh, yeah, that's right. Now that you mention it, that is, in fact, exactly where Jesus is going. That's what's coming next. He's going to talk about the rich man and Lazarus and the rich man lifting up his eyes in hell. As we are talking about Jesus responding to people who come after him, this is where Jesus goes. It's essential to note. Jesus is telling them this. And we're, we're, by the way, just let me tell you right now, we're going to take our time with this passage. We're going to be in this for several weeks. Because it's important to get not just the theology, although that's essential. We need to get what Jesus is getting at. Jesus is looking at these guys in front of him and trying to help them understand who God truly is so that they will repent. If they don't repent, they will spend eternity right next to this rich guy. This is what Jesus tells them to help them understand the truth. So let's read it. Let's, let's read the passage. It's not unfamiliar, I don't think, to any of you. But here we go. Luke chapter 16, starting verse 19. Now, there was a rich man, and he habitually dressed in purple and fine linen, joyously living in splendor every day. And a poor man named Lazarus was laid at his gate, covered with sores. And longing to be fed with the crumbs, which were falling from the rich man's table. Besides, even the dogs were coming and licking his sores. Now, the poor man died and was carried away by the angels to Abraham's bosom. And the rich man also died and was buried. In Hades, he lifted up his eyes, being in torment, and saw Abraham far away and Lazarus in his bosom. And he cried out and said, Father Abraham, have mercy on me. And send Lazarus so that he may dip the tip of his finger in water and cool off my tongue, for I am in agony in this flame. But Abraham said to him, Child, remember that during your life you receive good things, and likewise Lazarus, bad things. 
but now he is being comforted here, and you are in agony. And besides all this, between us and you, there is a great chasm fixed, so that those who wish to come over from here to you will not be able, and that none may cross over from there to us. And he said, then I beg you, Father, that you send to my father's house, for I have five brothers, in order that uh, he may warn them so that they will not also come to this place of torment. But Abraham said, they have Moses and the prophets, let them hear them. But he said, no, Father Abraham, but if someone goes to them from the dead, they will repent. But he said to them, if you do not listen to Moses and the prophets, they'll not be persuaded even if someone rises from the dead. So let's start where Jesus starts. Let's, let's start with the rich man. This story, like many of the stories of Jesus, many that he's told just, you know, without even really thinking about it here, there's, there's two things, right? We've got the kingdom of darkness and the kingdom of light. We've got, you know, the, the many sheep, which were safe, and the one sheep, which was lost. We've got the many coins, which we know where they are, and we've got the one lost coin. We've got the two sons. One son is lost, and one son is there. We've got two masters, God and money. Pick one. So God, Jesus works on making it very, very simple, very clear. The stories that Jesus tells, it's not that there aren't elements in them that aren't difficult to discern, but on the whole, Jesus makes it quite clear. There's, there's this side and that side. And so here we are with another one of these stories, very clear. We've got a very rich man, and we've got a very poor man. Now, as Jesus starts this and says there was a wealthy man, uh, the Pharisees, who were lovers of money, which is just what prompted this story, they're all scoffing at him. So when Jesus starts this story with, now there was a rich man, they would immediately identify with that guy. I mean, as soon as Jesus said that, they're thinking, okay, that's our guy. That, that's the guy we're, we're, if you're telling a story and it's about a rich guy, that's our guy. We're on his side. Obviously, in their theological viewpoint, a rich guy is a guy who is blessed by God. That's how they saw this. Uh, so they're going to immediately identify with this guy. As far as they're concerned, a person who is wealthy is a person who has the ability to do things for God. And the more wealth you have, the more you can do for God. So if you bring an offering for these guys to offer, like, you know, a, a turtle dove, a, you know, a pigeon, uh, that, yeah, that's kind of embarrassing. Uh, let's bring a lamb. Oh, let's bring two lambs. L let's, bring, let's bring an ox. You know, the bigger and the more showy and the, and the better an offering we can give, obviously the more impressed God is going to be. I mean, if we really want to impress God, maybe we should, I don't know, build a synagogue or something. You know, let's, let's really put our money on the line here and show God just how dedicated we are. Jesus, on the other hand, from the very beginning of his ministry, has picked up the exact same theme which John the Baptist preached, which is repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. What matters is your heart, humility, confession, repentance, and acknowledgement that you are unworthy to enter into the kingdom, which is why you need to repent. You don't just show up and go, okay, here I am, take me into the kingdom. Uh, you actually need to prepare for the kingdom. 
And preparation for the kingdom is repentance, an acknowledgement of our shortcomings, an acknowledgement that we are not worthy to enter the kingdom of heaven as we are right now. It requires repentance. Well, not these guys. These guys have been opposing Jesus from day one. So we turn back to Luke chapter 6. And in Luke chapter 6, Jesus is on the Sabbath in a synagogue. And it says this, he's teaching. And there's a man there whose right hand was withered. We all know the story, right? The scribes and the Pharisees were watching closely to see if he was going to heal him on the Sabbath. So that, why? So that they might believe in him? No, so that they might find a reason to accuse him. He, of course, knows what they're thinking, and so he calls the guy forward, again, very public, gets the guy up there and says, um, you know, is it lawful to do good on the Sabbath or to do evil? To heal life or to destroy it? And he looks around at them all, and (laughs) they don't say anything, but they're seething. They're just, oh, they're just angry. And so he tells the guy to stretch out his hand. And their response is, they themselves were filled with rage and discussed together what they might do to Jesus. Okay, this is Luke chapter 6. This is is right, you know, early in his ministry. They hate him. Ah, but if you get to Luke chapter 7, just a mere next chapter, well, he's taught, once again, he's completed his discourse, verse 1, in the hearing of all the people. He goes to Capernaum, and there a centurion has a slave who is highly regarded by him. And he is, this, the slave is now sick and about to die. And when he heard about Jesus, he sent some Jewish elders asking him to come and save the life of his servant. And they come to Jesus, okay, the Jewish elders. These are the guys who you know, in charge of town. These are the guys who are going to be, some of them are going to be Pharisees. Some of them are going to be scribes. These are guys who are leaders of the nation of Israel. These are the guys. They're in charge. It's the same guys who just hated Jesus a chapter before and will proceed to hate him later. But for just this moment, they come to him and they say, they implore him. They earnestly implore him and say, he is worthy for you to grant this to him. It's you, he's worthy for you to give this to him. Why? Well, because he loves our nation, and it was he who built our synagogue. Yeah, he's one of those rich guys who, you know, he built a synagogue for us. So we're really mad at you for healing, you know, someone who's been bowed over for 18 years. We don't really care about the guy with a withered hand. We, we don't care about the guy with dropsy. We don't care about any of them. But, you know, this guy's rich. So you really ought to heal his servant. That's who these people are. That's who we're talking about here. This is exactly the kind of people they are. They don't really care about anyone who can't benefit them. Hard-hearted to the point of cruelty. I mean, here's a guy with a withered hand. I don't care. I don't care about him and his withered hand. I didn't come get healed on Sunday. The Saturday is the Sabbath, and there's six days a week to get healed. We, we don't care. What we care about are riches and wealth. What we care about is that, well, look at us. Obviously, God is happy with us. Look how blessed we are. Look at how much money we have. So we know we're godly. These people, they're, they're sick. They're under the curse of God. I mean, look at them. 
They don't have any money. Look, look at this guy. He's so paralyzed, they have to dig a hole in the ceiling and let him down. I mean, obviously, God is mad at that guy. And then Jesus not only heals the guy, but forgives his sins. Oh, they're really mad about that. So here we are with this story. And Jesus starts it just as he started a Another story, in fact, the first story he tells in Luke chapter 16. There, there was a rich man who had a manager, and this is the, you know, the kind of devious steward guy, right? So he starts that parable with, there was a rich man who had this steward. And so that's what parables are, right? Parables are the stories that Jesus tells to convey a single truth. So we come to the question of, and we might as well answer it now, is this account in front of us a parable, or is this a actual real-life event. Well, first of all, whichever it is, it's a pretty terrifying story. Uh, Whether you happen to think that this is a parable, which uh, it starts like all the rest of his parables, it certainly fits all of the criteria of what would make a parable, uh, except for the one place where he actually gives the guy's name. We'll get to that in, in a moment. But Whether it's a parable or whether it's an actual event, either way, this story should cause great sobriety to everyone who hears it. So Jesus starts out. Now, there was a rich man, and uh, he habitually dressed in purple and fine linen and joyously lived in splendor every day. So the Pharisees were like, yeah, this is our kind of guy. Now, what's important for us is there's a lot packed into this one verse. It might, kind of, it might kind of pass us by, so I don't want it to pass us by. Uh, this guy, he habitually dresses like this. He does this all the time. He, the things that he's doing, he does them every day. He dresses in purple. We live in a society, we are, we are spoiled rotten. If you want to wear purple, I don't know, whatever purple article of clothing you'd like, you can, you can get it. Want a purple shirt? Fine. You want purple pants? Who cares? You want purple sneakers? You can make your hair purple. I mean, we don't care. Purple is just one more color in the rainbow. We don't. Purple's good. But in the ancient world, to make something purple was actually a little difficult. There was a particular shellfish, and you would have to extract from it this particular purple that would make a dye, and it was an expensive process. It was difficult to do, and there weren't that many things, actually, that were purple. People who had the ability to purchase purple things generally were quite wealthy. Uh, royalty, you will recall in Mark, Mark 15, when they, they take Jesus and they're mocking him, the Roman soldiers. They're, you know, hail the king of the Jews. And what do they put? They put a purple robe on him, a mark of royalty. And that's part of their mockery. They dress him up in this purple robe. And, of course, they, they yank it off of him and, you know, and then take him out to crucify him. So this guy's outer garments, they, they're purple. And he wears them every day. He wears them all the time. This is continuous. This guy is so wealthy that he has the ability to wear the clothing of royalty every day. Expensive. And not only was his outerwear, but fine linen. Now, fine linen is your undergarments. He's wearing not just nice undergarments, fine undergarments. 
the, the cloth against his skin is really nice stuff. Every day. Every day. This is how this guy dresses every day. So the fine linen is, this, so it's not just a purple robe to, you know, you might just be showing off. Maybe you actually managed to scrape together the money. Oh, no. He's, he didn't just scrape together the money. This isn't just for show. His inner garments are very well-to-do as well. Now, he joyously living, which, once more, the, in English, it doesn't completely capture it. This is talking about food. This is talking about banqueting, feasting. Uh, this is actually the word uh, aphrinos, where we, we get euphoria. This is, this is the word for euphoria. This, this guy lives a life which every single day is just this festive party. Let's just throw a banquet every single day. You remember the guy who got a really big bumper crop and he said, I, I say to my soul, soul, you have many goods laid up for many years to come. Take your ease. Eat, drink, and be merry. That's this guy. He parties every day. He acts every day like, you know, it's just, he lives sumptuously, which is actually the word lampros, from which we get the word lamp. He is shining and brilliant. This is really ostentatious. This is, this is just over the top. This guy, he's rich. Everybody knows it. He makes sure everybody knows it. He throws parties every day. He dresses like he's royalty. And Later, we'll get to where Lazarus is laying at his gate. The word for gate here is actually the same kind of word that would be used for a very ornate gate, like the gate beautiful. Remember the guy was laying at the gate beautiful? That's a city gate. This is a gate that's big enough for eight, ten people together to go in and out of this gate, or the gate to a temple. Same word. So this guy has a huge outer gate for his big estate that he lives in. And he lives in a mansion, and he dresses like royalty, and he throws parties every day. And Jesus is really making an effort here through the words that he's using to convey just how wealthy this guy is. The Pharisees would, in, a, in this one verse, would quickly conclude, this guy is blessed of God. Well, however this story's going, wherever this story's going, this is the godly guy. Because if they're not him, they'd like to be. Because he's got the blessing of God on his life. So, now we get to the next guy. So, here's Lazarus. And when we come to Lazarus, now, we also need to deal with the issue of, well, is this a parable? Because, well, in Jesus' parables, he never uses proper names. Well, maybe he never does except in this one, because he clearly does use a proper name. Uh, there's no doubt about it. Uh, he does use the name Lazarus. Does that make this a, a real story as opposed to just another parable? Well, the name Lazarus means God helps. It's a shortened form of Eleazar. God helps. So maybe we could just look at this as Jesus uses this name to really bring attention to the fact that God helps. And God is going to help this poor guy. So he's now laid at this guy's gate, which, depending on how you actually do the grammar in here, he's either kind of 
He either goes there and collapses, or he's kind of just, you know, put there. What do we do with this guy? I don't know. Put him at this guy's gate. You know, just, just kind of set him over there. The fact is that he's now in a place where he can't move. He's, he's paralyzed. He can't get up. He can't do anything. So this poor man named Lazarus was laid at his gate. He's covered with sores, and he's longing to be fed with the crumbs, which are falling from the rich man's table. And the dogs are coming and licking his sores. So he's lying there. He can't get up. He can't move. He is covered with sores. We, it's difficult to say, are these abscesses, are these ulcers? Whatever they are, they're broken open. They're not doing well. But trying to get into too much information here. But just wait. It's going to get worse. So we'll, we'll pass on that one. He's got open, oozing sores. And he can't move. And he's lying there. And he's longing for the crumbs that fall off the table. I mean, he's just, he's just looking and he's like, what I wouldn't give to be just close enough to get some of the stuff that's coming, that's just falling off the table. And it's clear that he's longing and not getting. Now the dogs come and lick his source. Now, we have dogs. I, I have a dog. I love my dog. I, I, if you have a dog, I'm going to go with you. Probably love your dog too. We have all kinds of dogs and breeds of dogs and we got cute little ones and, and really nice big ones and we tend to see them as our pets, part of the family. Okay, that is not the ancient world. In the ancient world, dogs were unclean animals. Dogs were not taken care of. Dogs were mangy. They were dirty. They were filthy. They ate. Well, if you do or don't, as it were, pay attention to your dog, you'd be surprised at your dog will eat. Uh, your dog is willing to eat. Pretty much anything. And having eaten maybe something that is just like no one in their right mind would eat it, it's so bad it even makes the dog sick. So they throw it up. Do I need to say it? Yeah, because we've all watched. They go back over, hey, you know, that doesn't smell so bad. And it's warm now. Yeah, oh, yeah, that's, that's dogs. That's, and then they want to come lick your face, you know. Um, yeah. That, and so this is not, you know, Jesus is not telling this like this is some kind of medicinal thing. Oh, a dog's tongue is cleaner than ours. Oh, uh, well, yeah. <laughs> depending on what you feed your dog, that might be true. If your dog is out eating garbage and dead animals and who in the world knows what else he's eating, uh, the dog's tongue has got problems here. And these dogs, this is not, this is not good. Uh, chances are very good that the dogs which are coming over here and licking his sores are infecting them. It probably stings. And he's unable to basically fend them off. He can't stop them from doing it. They're wild dogs. So well, what about the crumbs? Well, again, in the ancient world, uh, their eating was unlike ours. First of all, they reclined. So you know, the, if they had a, the table was not very high. And they would, you know, one, the one actually left, the one elbow and eat with your right hand. And they would recline around the table and, um, you know, you'd dip your bread or whatever it was in the stuff. And, you know, in the sop and, and it would on the table, you know, on the way over. And, you know, you'd eat it. And, okay, so how do you clean the table? I mean, it's got whatever, you know, the juices that have fallen off. Well, one of the things you would do is you would take the old bread that you couldn't eat 
because uh, it was old and moldy and dried out, and you would use it to rub the table with to clean up everything that was there and then brush it off. And much like us, they had vacuum cleaners back then too. And maybe, depending on your house, you might have a vacuum cleaner like this. I do. It's a biovac. He's about this high, lots of hair, and man, he just can't wait for stuff to come off the table, you know? Please. I mean, it hits the ground, it goes to the hound, right? I mean, that, that's what they did. That's where the dogs came from. Lazarus is lying there at the gate, watching this occur in there, wishing he could literally eat what the dogs are eating. That's what he's wishing. That's how bad off this guy is. He's got sores all over his body. He can't move. He's, he's lying there literally starving to death. No one is taking care of him. No one is watching out for him. No one is taking anything. No, one, no one's taking any of the stuff off the table and coming over and giving it to him. The only thing that's coming over to him are the dogs who are now over here licking his sores. The guy is desperate. He's starving to death. He was left there at the gate in hopes that the rich guy would take some pity on him. Mercy. And there's no welfare. They didn't have a welfare system back there. You would just go to people who had wealth. And by the way, the wealthy guy did have an obligation to take care of Lazarus, but there's no indication he did. He's literally starving while the rich guy is feeding sumptuously. While this guy is holding feasts every day and dressing like royalty and throwing a big party and obviously got more food than he can eat and all of his guests can eat, they're, they're even using food and you know, throwing it on the ground. That, no one's giving any of it to Lazarus. He's miserable. He's starving. He's destitute. Dressed in rags. Can't even cover his own sores. And the rich man is covered in fine linen and dressed in purple. And then they die. Now, if you're the Pharisees and you're sitting there listening to this and you're already identifying with the rich guy and you're thinking he's the greatest guy ever and man, wouldn't you love to be him? Jesus goes on and says, now the poor man died and was carried away by the angels to Abraham's bosom. Jesus is going to contrast, he compares and contrasts these two guys. Now, the rich man dies too, and he's buried. There's no doubt about it, you know, that the, that the rich man gets a big funeral. Lazarus, we don't even know what happens to his body. It's possible he's just, he's just buried in the common grave. So the angels come, and they take Lazarus to Abraham's bosom. Now, I don't know what you think about Aaron's bosom. I don't, you know, it's possible that somewhere in your theological past, you have been taught that Abraham's bosom is a kind of a, a proper noun for some kind of a location, some transitory place between uh, heaven and, you know, that the righteous before Jesus died went to Abraham's bosom, and then after Jesus died, he took them all to heaven. Um, I'm going to hate to disabuse you of that idea here, but uh, I'm about to. So you may want to try to not hold on to that too hard. Just, just, just listen here. Uh, so what's going on here? The Pharisees at whom this is directed, 
they have a view of heaven. In their mind, they see heaven as an enormous banquet. When you get to heaven, you're going to go to the heavenly banquet. Jesus will actually say this in Matthew 8, verse 11. Jesus will say, I say to you that many will come from the east and from the west and recline at the table with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven. In their minds, that is the, that is the ideal. We, the average American has a weight problem, and it's not because they're too thin. The average American has a few too many pounds on them. So we kind of look at food like, hmm, you know, I mean, we thank God for our food, hopefully, you know. But food is not, it doesn't really obsess. Well, it does, but not like these folks. These folks are obsessed by food because they're starving. This is a culture in which, you know, if you could, they did not eat three meals a day. You were lucky to get one really good, solid, fill-your-stomach meal a day. So heaven is a place where you can just go eat and eat and eat. I mean, this is how they pictured heaven. Of course, you would go to heaven, and finally, finally, you would stop being hungry. And it was a great feast. And one of the most premier things that you could possibly do in their society, remember, we've already talked about this, they made evaluations with one another based on where you sat. Jesus has already warned them. When you go to a banquet, do not go sit at the head table. Go sit at the low table. So that when the person who's actually throwing this feast, comes in, they see you at the lower table, like, oh, no, come on up. The last thing you want to do is have them walk in, see you seated at the head table and go, I'm sorry, you don't belong here. You and then you're embarrassed in front of everybody as they take you to the lower. So they saw and sought to get the primary seats. Remember Jesus, this is just the last chapter. They would come in and they would kind of jockey for position to see who could get the, the best seat. Remember the disciples' mom. Uh, hey, when you come into your kingdom, can my, can my son sit on your right hand and on your left? You know, When we get into that great feast, you know, that big banquet up there in the sky, can, can my sons you know, sit on your right hand and your left? So when you went to the banquet and you got the prime seat, well, they would jockey for the prime seat. Now, heaven is pictured by them as a banquet. And the prime seat, of course, would be Abraham. Abraham is hosting the banquet for the nation of Israel. I mean, he's the guy. He's the father. He is the, the, he's right there. Now, you understand, they, they know God is their father. But when you get to the banquet, to the feast, the primary, prime seat is filled by Abraham. The next prime seat is the guy to Abraham's right. Because you eat by laying on your elbow and you use your right hand to, you remember Jesus at the Last Supper, right? John, the disciple whom Jesus loves, is right there in front of Jesus. And when he talks to Jesus, what do you do? Well, you lean back. And when you lean back, you lean back to, into Jesus' chest. That's what you did. And that is the primary seat. That, that, other than the person actually hosting the banquet, that's the seat you want to be in. You want to be right next to the guy who's doing that. You actually lean back into their chest or their bosom. So here we have the rich man, and here we have Lazarus, and we have the heavenly banquet. The banquet that these guys cannot wait to get to. I mean, talk about jockeying for the prime position in the, in the 
the banquet of all banquets. Oh, what they wouldn't give to be at the right hand of Abraham. And who's there? Who in the world is there? Lazarus. Lazarus is reclining at the banquet feast right there and lean back into Abraham's chest. He's in Abraham's bosom. You'd better believe that when the Pharisees heard that, I mean, it's hard to really capture the moment, right? You only thought they were outraged. You only thought they were really upset when he went after them for their marriage and their, and their willingness to divorce their wives and to commit adultery with the next woman. You only thought they were upset about that. When Jesus gives this and says the poor guy, you know, the guy they despise, the guy they didn't care about, they didn't care about the guy with the withered hand or the woman bent over or the guy with dropsy. They did. Lazarus is the last guy in the world for them to have any concern for at all. And you come to find out God knows his name. He's actually given a name. And he, in the eternal banquet, is the guy seated at the right hand of Abraham. Of course, the rich man, he died too. And, and well, wait a minute, where's he? Oh, well, in hell, he lifts up his eyes, being in torment. And what does he see? He sees Abraham afar off and Lazarus lying right there in his bosom. Next week, we'll talk about that because our time is up, but the bitterness, the, the horror, the, this landed like a hammer blow to these guys. This, oh, this is just hard to describe how upset they'd be to somehow imply the rich guy ends up in Hades and Lazarus, the diseased-ridden guy, ends up in Abraham's bosom. But he did. Shocking to them. Why? Because Abraham, because Lazarus is humble. God provides. He's looking to God. He's not counting on, on his own wealth. Lazarus can't do anything. Lazarus can't give great offerings. Lazarus can't build a synagogue. Lazarus can't, can't do anything. He just trusts God. Come to find out that's all it takes. Just trust God. Let's pray. Lord, we are astounded at your ability in just a few words to convey so much truth. Lord, we can hardly wait to get to eternity ourselves and to study your word and to study the things you've said with renewed new minds, without our sin nature getting in the way, Lord, for eternity, we will be astounded at the depths of the truth. It will transform us literally forever. But for the moment, open our feeble minds to see and to appreciate and to be amazed and wondered by your truth. May it transform us. 
may we look at this and see you just desire us to trust you. May we do that with all our hearts. We pray in Jesus' precious name. Amen.